0: Well, please open your Bibles and we're going to begin uh, by reading our text for today, which is Psalm 51. This is one of the most well-known and well-prayed psalms there is in Scripture. It's a psalm that is read when we are on our knees pleading for the mercy of God after falling into sin, but the words of this psalm should also bring us to our knees as it shines a light on the extent of our sin and the absolute necessity of God's mercy to us. So Psalm 51, these are the words of the Lord through his servant David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then balls will be offered on your altar. The uh, inscription on this psalm gives us the context for when and why it was written. It leads us to the events recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And there we read the horrible and tragic account of what happened when King David committed adultery with Bathsheba uh, while Bathsheba's husband Uriah was away fighting in David's army. Things became even more complicated when Bathsheba conceived a child. David tried to cover this up by bringing Uriah back from the battlefront so that he might have relations with his own wife, making Uriah think that the child was his own. Fortunately, Unfortunately for David, Uriah acted righteously, refusing to spend the night with his own wife while his brothers were out fighting in his stead so when all this plan failed david's conspiracy became even darker he sent a concealed letter back with uriah in his hand to the commander of david's army a man called joab in the letter david told joab to send uriah to the toughest part of the battle and then give word for all the men to abandon their posts, leaving uriah to be slaughtered uriah handed over his own death warrant Things happened the way David had intended. But then in Second Samuel chapter 12, we, we see that David received a visit from the prophet Nathan. Nathan told him a story about a rich man who stole the sheep of a poor man. And this riled David right up. And David commanded that this rich man should be killed for his treachery. And what a surprise for David when Nathan turned and looked at him and declared, you are the man. David had thought that his sin was hidden, that he'd gotten away with it, but nothing is hidden from the Lord. It led to David's confession, it led to the writing of this psalm. But the inscription of this psalm also tells us that it was intended for corporate worship. So while the original event of this psalm was specific to David... Uh, it's nonetheless applicable for any believer who has fallen into sin. That's why it's such a well-known psalm, because it gives words to our feelings during those moments when we've fallen short of God's glorious standards. There is much in this psalm for those who've never repented of their sins, who've never been justified before God for unbelievers, but the focus is really upon believers uh, who have fallen short multiple times through this passage david declares restore me to he's speaking as a redeemed man who has fallen in 1 john chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 the apostle says to the believers if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness While those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit will never stumble out of saving grace, Psalm 51 provides words for believers who have stumbled into sin. And it's the prime example of the instruction from John. So Psalm 51 really is the penitence prayer, the prayer of the repentant. It begins in verses 1 to 2 with a cry for mercy here is the starting point for sinners it's to acknowledge that the guilt of our sin can only be dealt with by calling upon the mercy of god david truly understood this he didn't set about trying to earn favor with god but he pleaded for god's merciful favor towards him he cried out asking that god would have pity and compassion upon him david's forgiveness could only be granted by God he was completely at God's mercy but notice that in pleading to God David asked God to act according to his own merciful and loving character David was not calling upon a God who was fickle and capricious a God whose will was anyone's guess who one day might display forgiveness but the next day choose otherwise and really for no other reason than he simply felt like it if that was the case and david would have absolutely no confidence at all in approaching god he would simply have to hope that he was approaching god on a good day yet that's not the god of the bible that's not the god who created the heavens and the earth not at all david calls upon the god whose character does not change whose love is steadfast and whose mercy is abundant. Sinners may change, but God does not. Years before David understood this, God revealed the same thing to Moses. In Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, we read this. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Notice just how very similar that language is to what we find in David's prayer. God will be merciful to those who ask for his mercy and so david's only hope rested upon god's character and so he completely humbles himself before him the nature of this cry is uh, truly significant as well we see david demonstrates godly sorrow over sin he's not Focusing on the consequences that he's experiencing as a result of his sin, but upon the devastating nature of the sin itself. Charles Spurgeon said of this Many a murderer is more alarmed at the gallows than at the murder which brought him to it. The thief loves the plunder, though he fears the prison. Not so, David. He is sick of sin as sin. His loudest outcries are against the evil of his transgression and not against the painful consequences of it. When we sin, what's our response? Do we hate what God hates? Or do we hate that we got caught? Here's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. David hates the sin and his plea shows his deep desire to be rid of the sin in his life we see that clearly in what he pleads for blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin same terms we heard in exodus 34 these negative terms are the three primary ways that scripture deals with humanity's or describes humanity's offense against god Transgression is a deliberate stepping outside of the bounds of God's law. Iniquity is more general, covering any offence against God, whether that be in rebellious rejection or done unintentionally. And sin, which is of course the most common term, which means to miss the mark of God's revealed will. David's cry is that God would mercifully remove sin from his life and not just superficially but completely it out wash me thoroughly cleanse me it is a plea for forgiveness and it's a plea for holiness there's nothing half measured about this he's opening his whole life for god to do as he wills and having acknowledged that his future is totally in the hands of god He then lays out his confession of sin. So verse 3. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. There's no sense here of David trying to cover up his sin. His eyes have been opened and he feels the weight of it. By the grace of God, he's been enabled to acknowledge the reality of his sin. And it is this acknowledgement in his own heart that enables him to confess it. Now, he doesn't specifically list his sins here, but we know to what he's referring. Of course, it's important for us to be specific when we're on our knees before God. And yet, we're grateful for the words that David penned because his generality means that we can use his words for our own prayers. When our own sins are revealed to us, this psalm gives us a a framework to be able to confess them to God. And ultimately... We confess our sins to God because the primary one our sin offends is God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, we might cause harm to another person, but when we do, it's really a failure to follow God's revealed will in which we are called to love our neighbours as ourselves. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, but... That was a transgression against the seventh commandment. David orchestrated the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, but that was transgression against the sixth commandment. We need to see our sins from this perspective. We need to see that our words and actions against others are even more significantly against God. David shows us the purpose of doing so. After recognizing it is truly God whom he's offended, he offers these reasons to God, saying, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, what does that mean? It means that David is acknowledging that how God responds to David's pleas are completely up to God. If God acts with justice and punishes David for his sin, then God would be completely within his right to do so. David does not presume in any way upon God's mercy. And that's important for us to remember. To be merciful is God's own prerogative. It's his choice. Nothing in scripture says that God must give mercy. Now, God never acts unjustly. He either acts with mercy or justice, but never unjustly. (laughs) what david brings out here is that god would be blameless if he wiped david out to do so would be a righteous action on god's behalf in fact david goes further to show that his sinful actions with Bathsheba are simply a result of his sinful nature a nature that has been with him since his birth he sinned because he's a sinner verse five behold i was brought forth in iniquity And in sin did my mother conceive me. Now it's not David's conception that was sinful, but that as a member of the human race, he received the sin nature that was passed down from Adam after the fall. He was born in total depravity. We've all been born in total depravity. From the moment of our conception, the moment our lives begin, from that very moment. This means that our wills are in bondage, to sin we are born sorry when we are born and grow up we develop the capacity to make choices but all our choices are determined by what we desire and since we all have a sinful nature our desire is for sin only by the grace of god can our desires be redeemed that we might desire to follow god in and of ourselves we are sinners through and through and this shows that god is perfectly right to judge us but david's not done in showing the righteousness of god in his judgment at the beginning of verse 6 he says behold you delight in truth in the inward being david reminds us that god is concerned about what is on the inside now a pure heart will always lead to good works but good works are not always proof of a pure heart If the internal motivation is wrong, then it sours the works. And of course, only God and the individual know the truth of the matter. Commentators find agreement on this point, the first part of this verse, but there are different interpretations of the second part of the verse, where David says, And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Some see this as referring to God opening David's eyes to his current sin enabling him to repent. Others see it as a, a prayer for future wisdom. Now, in one sense, both of those things could be true in this context, but uh, they align with other teaching from Scripture. However, there is a third option that has been presented and uh, one that I think fits better with the context. You see, in the first part of verse 6, David is acknowledging that God is concerned about what's on the inside. In the second part of the verse David is acknowledging that God has been teaching him wisdom and that David has spurned the wisdom that God has given and done something utterly and terribly contrary to what he knows is God's revealed will. So with this interpretation, David is seen as indicting himself even further. He should know better of all people. He's showing why God is even more blameless if he should desire to pour out his judgment upon David. David acknowledges the true depth of sin, particularly in himself, but generally within all of humanity. But his confession shows shows the true regret over his sin, his hatred of this sin. And he pleads for forgiveness. Yet he desires more than forgiveness he wants to be made pure and so his confession of sin leads to a craving for purity verse 7 purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean hyssop is a type of plant that has hairy leaves and this property meant that it was a good tool to be used for old testament cleansing rituals that involve sprinkling the liquid would would hold to the leaf that it could be sprinkled the connection of verse 6 and 7 show that these old testament ceremonies were never simply outward acts of obedience and cleansing but they pointed to what needed to take place inside a person's heart the seriousness of david's craving for purity is seen as in, in his illustration uh, when he declares in the rest of verse 7, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He knows the effect of God's cleansing and he prays for it. He takes a, a part of God's earthly creation that we associate with, with purity, that is white snow, and praises God's power that if he decides to wash David clean, then it would make him even more pure than white snow. You see, he understands that joy and gladness can only return to him if the guilt of his sin is dealt with, if it's removed from his presence, if he is cleansed and renewed. His sin has brought God's discipline upon him. It is God who has figuratively broken David's bones. But again, the deepest pain he feels is not the consequences of his sin, but the guilt that he has offended God. he's fallen short of God's glory. He longs to be purified, that he would be able to sing God's praises and rejoice in him once more. So he continues to pray, saying in verse 9, Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. It's a plea for God to look upon his sins no more, to scrub them from the ledger. The following verse he shows just how much we need god's work in our lives for purification you see in verse 10 david doesn't pray lord help me to make my heart clean he doesn't pray like this rather he prays create in me a clean heart O god and renew a right spirit within me john calvin writes that we are indebted entirely to the grace of god both for our first regeneration and in the event of our falling for subsequent restoration for david he prayed this prayer as a redeemed man in need of restoration from his terrible sin he had already been saved by the grace of god and yet here he still acknowledges that god's grace is completely necessary in bringing him to repentance and renewal but the truth is of these words demonstrates the dire state our hearts are in we're not simply in need of a bit of assistance we are in need of new creation and only god can create life out of death (coughs) david also knows that true life is only found with a god because he expresses his fears at god departing from him verse 11 cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me when we read this verse we need to be aware of its place in salvation history at pentecost the holy spirit was poured out by christ to indwell and empower all who believed in christ prior to this moment the holy spirit regenerated the hearts of sinners through the word of god enabling them to trust in god's promises but they were not indwelt by the spirit permanently in the old testament the the holy spirit rested in the tabernacle and then in the temple he also rested upon certain individuals for empowerment to certain types of service such as prophets and priests and kings the spirit rested upon saul the first king of israel but when saul disobeyed the spirit then rested upon david So in one sense, this prayer is directly applicable to David. He had seen what had happened to Saul and he did not want that for himself. But in another sense, it's something that all believers in the Old Testament could have easily sung, knowing that the presence of the Spirit of God in the midst of Israel meant blessing to Israel. I mean, what a breathtaking tragedy it was for the people when prior to the exile years later after David... The glory of God left the temple. As Christians today, we know that once the spirit has regenerated our hearts through the hearing of the gospel, enabled us to repent and trust in Christ Jesus, we know that those who are truly drawn to Christ by the Father will never be cast away. We will never have the indwelling Holy Spirit removed. He is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come. While true believers under the old covenant had a different experience of the spirit, they too could never lose their salvation. The indwelling spirit is one of the blessings of the new covenant. David knew that he would not lose his salvation, but he didn't allow this to be a means for failing to repent before God. And so we too can pray the same prayer as David in the midst of our sin while understanding that god will never take back the salvation of his people his people will be those who never ever presume upon his graces his people will be acutely aware of the holiness of god and his right to cast us away due to our sin we boast in christ alone But while there is assurance in our salvation, our sins can certainly affect the way in which we experience our life with God. When we fail to obey the Lord, we feel that in our hearts. David certainly did so when he asked of God in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So just note again that he hasn't asked to be saved again. That's not the issue. He hasn't lost his salvation genuine believers never will but he does ask that the joy of knowing he is saved is restored to him once more and joy is something that can only be returned through open confession to god and when there is peace once more knowing that god's discipline has been completed for that moment but david's desire is not limited to returning to the person he was before this specific sin he doesn't want to go back to the way things were he wants very much to grow in his maturity as a child of god and he knows that this cannot happen unless the lord upholds him through it the willing spirit to grow in sanctification here is david's spirit and david must exercise his will in obedience to god but it's god who upholds david's will in this process god not only saves us but he sustains us and sanctifies us a true believer is never satisfied with their own level of holiness for they have their eyes set on the holiness of god and the more god grows them the more they realize just how far short they fall of his standards now the wonder of salvation is that when christ returns to gather his people to raise them all to resurrection life at that moment they will be sanctified completely glorified we will never reach that perfection in this life but god's children know where they are headed and so they are eager to follow him in those purposes now David's craving for purity follows his cry for mercy and his confession of sin. Only at this point does he now begin to think about his service to God. You see, good works are important, but it's also important at what point in the conversation they come in. They haven't been raised until this point because David is careful to ensure that his thinking about works does not contribute in any way to earning a right standing before God. Mercy comes first, then works. David speaks about these good works, verses 13 to 17, with what we might call a commitment to righteousness. Righteousness. David's renewed desire to serve God takes shape in several ways. Firstly there's this commitment to teaching others about God's righteousness. Verse 13, "Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you." Throughout his most recent experience, David has been made acutely aware of God's holy standards of the depravity of the human heart and the extravagant mercy of god for those who humble themselves before him david has had a renewed and profound insight into his relationship with god and it ignites a deep desire within him to teach others he wants to share what he has learned about the holiness and about the grace and mercy of god like the apostle paul who described himself as the chief of sinners or like the apostle peter who abandoned the lord during the lord's time of suffering david uses his experiences of god's grace toward him to teach in the hopes that others too would recognize the greatness of their sin but also see the greater greatness of god's mercy if god can if god can forgive men like these then there's no one beyond the bounds of divine mercy. It's a message for Christians who have stumbled into sin and it's a message for non-believers who are still living in their sin nature. All who repent of their sin and call on the name of the Lord will be saved. David wants God to work good out of the terrible experiences of his own life. He wants God to use the hard lessons he has taught David as a means of bringing others to the Lord. But there's more to David's renewed commitment. Secondly, there's a, a commitment to singing about God's righteousness. Verse 14 Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, this is really an extension on the first point, but it shows that the teaching David wants to pursue is no cold exercise. It shows that David is not wanting to teach others about the grace of God as a a sense of dry formal duty, but as a joyful expression of the hope that has been rekindled in his heart and his immense knowledge of God's love for him and his love for God. The term blood guiltiness refers to the punishment that should have. Been justly inflicted upon david for his sins both murder and adultery were to be punished by death but in his mercy god forgave these sins and spared david's life now, this didn't mean that the consequences david actually experienced from this event were not profound they were the episode with bathsheba was a distinct downward turning point in david's kingship But what we read here in verse 14 is nevertheless characteristic of David's life. He was a man who sinned greatly. He rejoiced in the God who forgives repentant sinners. Now, what is the righteousness of God that David sings about? Well, it concerns God's perfection in the way he acts, both in judgment and in mercy. And here, particularly of God's goodness to forgive David's sins. Moreover, it points to the greatest expression of divine righteousness, that which comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God was not unjust in forgiving sin because all the sins that had been mercifully forgiven were dealt with on the cross of Christ. And when a sinner trusts in Christ, the punishment for their sins is laid upon Christ, but the goodness of Christ's life his righteousness is credited to the repentant sinner these two aspects make our justification before god and what we know today through the life of jesus is the fulfillment of god's promises given to the people of old spurgeon once wrote a great sinner pardon makes a great singer sin has a loud voice and so should our thankfulness have We shall not sing our own praises if we shall be saved, but our theme will be the Lord our righteousness in whose merits we stand righteously accepted. As David rounds out his commitment, he says one more thing, verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's a commitment to having his praises to God directed god david wants the truth about god to spring forth from his lips in both praise and proclamation but he recognizes all too clearly that if god is not directing that activity then david is destined to fall short here too now david's not committing himself to a literal vow of silence only speaking when the lord physically enabled him to speak but his heartfelt desire Was that all his words reflected the revealed will of God? He wanted his whole life to shine forth the glories of God. He wanted this because he understood that is what God wants. Look at verses 16 to 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. See, David understands the level of righteousness that God requires. It's not merely external, but truly internal. And in these words, David doesn't wipe out the sacrificial and ceremonial system that God set in place for Israel, but he shows their true intent. The external actions were meant to reflect the internal condition in the heart of God's people. But the internal condition can only be regenerated, redeemed, and restored by the work of God. When God graciously saves and restores us, He graciously calls us to serve Him, enabling us to be the means of proclaiming and praising Him to this lost world so that others might hear and respond to the good news sin keeps us focused on ourselves whereas grace lifts our eyes to god and to others and this aspect is brought home very clearly in the final section of this psalm where david has a concern for the lord's people in verse 18 he prays to the lord asking him to do good to zion in your good pleasure build up the walls of jerusalem david's selfishness is replaced with sincerity he fears that his sinful actions may have caused the lord to cease acting in goodness to his chosen people and so he pleads for this not to be the case in a physical sense david prayed that the lord would enable the building of the temple upon mount zion in jerusalem See, David had long desired to have a permanent place built for the Lord's presence as opposed to the temporary nature of the tabernacle. He prayed that his actions had not hindered this prospective blessing to the people. We know that his prayer was answered when God permitted Solomon to do so after David's death. And there's God's grace at work, isn't it? Because Solomon was a son of David and Bathsheba. But Zion came to be used not only of the Temple Mount, but of the whole geographical area of Jerusalem, and then of the whole people of God. And in this spiritual sense, David's prayer is that God will do the work of establishing his people in their faith, that he would build them up so they become mature and godly. How often do our prayers stop once we finish praying for the things that immediately impact our own lives david's example challenges us that true spirituality always extends to the care of others when jesus summarized the law it consisted of love for god and love for neighbor and so a sign of god's grace at work in our hearts is our concern for others and particularly how our actions affect the lives of others these words of david also help us in another way Earlier, he had acknowledged that his sin was ultimately against God. But in doing so, he wasn't dismissing the pain that he had caused against others. He was simply putting things in the correct perspective. Scripture teaches us the necessity of repentance and forgiveness in the community of the Lord's people. I mean, Jesus, in fact, gives the clearest teaching on the process for this in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus deals with restoring relationships from the perspective of the one who sinned. In Matthew 18, Jesus very clearly explains the process if someone has sinned against you. One writer has said that these two passages give the picture of two people meeting each other on the road to see one another. With one coming to repent and the other coming to seek repentance. And that is a wonderful picture of life in the kingdom of God. But coming back to the final verses of Psalm 51, I want us to note that David's concern for the Lord's people matches the concern he has for his own life. In verses 15 to 17, uh, he had asked the Lord to direct his own words so that his external actions would flow from his godly inward disposition well here he prays the same thing for the lord's people he asks that god would do good to them that he would build them up because only then would the sacrifices they present flow from pure motives and be acceptable to god that's the result he speaks of in verse 19 then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered on your altar when god works in the people's hearts then their good works will be expressed from holy intentions now at the time of his writing david clearly meant animal sacrifices he was clearly speaking of the divinely instituted sacrificial system but from this side of the cross we understand that these sacrifices pointed to the ultimate and once for all sacrifice of jesus christ the writer of Hebrews explained in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. sacrifices that we offer to god now are the sacrifice of a life lived in service to the lord that's what paul speaks of isn't it in romans 12 when he declares in verse 1 i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship worship takes place first and foremost when the lord's people are gathered together to hear his word proclaimed, to sing his praises to take part in the ordinances of baptism and the lord's supper but worship honoring god revering him is something that we do with our whole lives sunday is crucial but it's not exclusive and while our own service is crucial we must be concerned with more than ourselves we need god's gracious empowering to lift our eyes to the church to the lord's people and there are many things that could be said as we close but i want to come back to the gospel itself you see the reason god can be merciful to his people is because of the life death and resurrection of the lord jesus christ romans 3 the apostle paul tells us that god revealed his righteousness in the cross jesus paid the price for the sins of all who would believe in him this satisfied god's justice and through faith in christ people receive god's mercy and he declares them justified before him david's hope in the character and promises of god was fulfilled in the person and the work of Of Jesus. Psalm 51 provides us with the proper response to sin. We are all in need of the mercy of God. And because God is faithful, we know that all who cry out to his mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ will receive his mercy. Mercy to be brought to him for the first time. Mercy to be restored to him once more. This is a very humbling psalm but one that gives us great hope for renewal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your work through your servant David. We are rightly joined with him in his his sadness, his grief, his hatred of the sin that he particularly committed. And yet through your grace, enabling him to repent, to come to you once more. Father, we have these words, these wonderful words which both humble us and lead us through the dark moments in our lives where we fall short of your glory. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in him we are saved through faith. Father, we thank you for the assurance that those you draw to faith in Christ will never be cast away. But help us never to presume upon your mercies. Help us to grow closer and to be conformed closer to the image of our Lord Jesus. And as we do so, as you, we grow closer to the light of your holiness, may you continue to shine a light on the sins that are hidden within our lives and may we humbly confess them. May we not shy away from the light, but may we desire and crave purity that we might serve you and glorify you as we will one day in your presence forever. We ask that you would continue to allow these words we've looked at today to impress upon our hearts today and in the week and in the weeks to come. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.